You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Building the Machine, a new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. Over these 12 episodes, we've been bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're seeing how the machine was constructed, all the highs and lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we've been bringing you a new episode focusing on a single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, hopefully you've enjoyed the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. Hopefully you've also enjoyed our thoughts on what was different about baseball in this era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. Now, if you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, hopefully this has been a fun blast from the past. This is episode 11 Still the Machine? I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1979 and the Big Red Machine is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, 79, spoiler alert, will end the same way that we started in 1970 with a division title. And it's a pretty good way to kind of wrap up this whole look at the Big Red Machine, I think. And we will talk in our uh, episode next week possibly about... Where did the Big Red Machine actually end? Did it go all the way to 79? There are different markers for that. But before we get into what happened in 1979, Bill, let's talk about uh, what happened in the news that year. A couple of items. First of all, Phillips demonstrated the compact disc publicly for the first time, and the Sony Walkman goes on sale in 1979 for the very first time in Japan. Did you have a Sony Walkman, Bill? No, but I did work for Phillips for six years, and my first v- my first uh, VHS player was a Phillips was a Magnavox who owned who Phillips owned and I think I spent like eight hundred dollars for my first uh, VHS tape player. Wow, those were the days. And it was about it was not long. It was like eighty one or something like that. Nineteen seventy nine, President Jimmy Carter addressed the nation in a televised speech, talking about the crisis of confidence in America today that would go on to be known as his National Malaise speech. What else was going on around the world in 1979, Bill? Uh, the Shah of Iran fleed Iran. Power was seized by the Ayatollah Khomeini. Later that year, the embassy was seized, or the American embassy was seized in Tehran, and 52 Americans were held hostage for over a year. 
There'd be a rescue attempt in early 1980, which would fail and would propel Ronald Reagan into the White House. And I was in the Navy. In fact, I was deployed when this rescue attempt happened. I was in Europe at the time. It was not a good day to be a member of the American military. I can imagine. Margaret Thatcher became the United Kingdom's first female prime minister. The Who concert disaster happened on December the 3rd when 11 fans were killed during a crowd crush at the Who concert here in Cincinnati at the Riverfront Coliseum. This was just a, a terrible, terrible event. Uh, I remember reading about this when I was on, in my ship's newspaper, and I was studying the, the list of people to make sure that there wasn't anybody that I knew that was killed at this thing. Uh, I found out later that I had a number of friends that were there that night, and all of them talk about the, the horror of being caught in that crowd, and you couldn't breathe, and your feet got lifted up off the ground, and Everybody that I, I know that was there said they've never experienced anything before or after that was anything like that. It was just a, a horrible event. Yeah, absolutely terrifying. No question about it. Also in 1979, the U.S. Voyager 1 space probe photos revealed Jupiter's rings. The state of Ohio agreed to pay $675,000 to families of the dead and injured in the Kent State shootings. McDonald's introduced the Happy Meal. That's a happy day indeed, Bill. Yes, it is. You always get a toy. <laughs> and the Sahara Desert in 1979, on February 18th, experienced snow for 30 minutes. Wouldn't that have been, wouldn't that have been like manna from heaven? I would think so if you're in the Sahara you know, Desert. One would think. <laughs> Bill, let's talk about movies in 1979. I'll let you go ahead and, and lead us through the uh, world of movies. The highest grossing film that year was Kramer versus Kramer with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Meryl Streep, one best picture. Not one of my favorites. I don't like depressing movies, and I thought that was a depressing movie. The Amityville Horror and the movie about the big rematch, match, Rocky II, Apollo Creed versus Rocky Balboa in the rematch. Apocalypse Now was released to worldwide critical acclaim and box office success, and it was heralded as one of the greatest films ever made to this day. And I saw this one the day of release. Just an unbelievably good movie. Yeah, and it even, though, even though it's depressing, too. It is, but a different type of depressing. Yep. Also that year, Woody Allen's Manhattan, another one of my absolute favorite, favorite films, came out in 1979. Black and White, uh, that great score, the George Gershwin. Uh, yeah, what, Woody lost me when he quit trying to be funny. Agreed, agreed. What else came out? Monty Python's Life of Brian. Maybe they're probably their second best movie. Star Trek came back. Star Trek The Motion Picture. And while it wasn't real good, it spawned a whole bunch of them after that, that, you know, that went on through, what, three franchises or whatever. Alien, which was a great movie and, and had a, maybe even a better sequel. Steve Martin's The Jerk, the Muppet movie, and what I think is the second worst Bond movie ever, and you think is the worst Bond movie ever, Moonraker came out that year. Watch Moonraker and see there's a, there's a pigeon in it that does a double take. And if you don't tell me that moment is not the single worst moment in any Bond movie, a bird does a double take because of something that he sees uh, Bond do. It's ludicrous. Uh, other movies that, that I caught, that caught my eye that came out that year, and there were there were a lot of good movies that year. Ten with Bo Derek, Norma Ray, Sally Field, The Rose with Bette Midler, The Great Santini with one of my, who I think is probably the greatest American actor, Robert Duvall. The In-Laws, a hysterically funny movie. 
and Richard Pryor's live and in concert. If you've never seen Richard Pryor's live in concert, first movie, you're really missing out. And you're missing uh, what made Pryor great on the on the stage doing stand-up. Yeah, I don't think I'd seen that until, uh, I don't know, probably three or four years ago. And it happened to be on Netflix, actually. And so I watched it, and you're right. it uh, just You can see why we say, why everyone says Richard Pryor was a comic genius. Last note on movies in 1979. Production began on two movies that would become uh, huge worldwide hits. The Empire Strikes Back and Raiders of the Lost Ark, our introduction to Indiana Jones. Let's move on to music. Biggest hit singles of 1979. Heart of Glass by Blondie, I Will Survive, Gloria Gaynor, Bad Girls and Hot Stuff by Donna Summer, My Sharona by Knack, and The Devil Went Down to Georgia by Charlie Daniels. Tell me what a great it. song! What a great song that is! Is that your favorite of that group? Uh, yeah, that's my favorite, and my Sharona by the Knack would be my least favorite. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I'll say this: this year, my son's high school, they had a kicker on the on the football team whose name was Charlie Daniels, and every time he made an extra point or a field goal, they played "The Devil Went Down to Georgia." And and, and I tell you, I, I've seen Charlie Daniels in concert probably I don't know four or five, six times. And I, I saw him the year he turned 80. And he was still up there doing it at 80. Now, he would take songs where he, you know, he'd go back and sit down. But at 80, he was still out there cranking out the, the you know, the fiddle. And it was pretty amazing. Pretty impressive. Also, 1979, the Bee Gees tied Bing Crosby, Elvis Presley, and the Beatles with a record six consecutive number one singles in the United States in less than a single calendar year. Bing Crosby... Elvis Presley, The Beatles, and The Bee Gees. I'm not sure which one of those doesn't belong, but Donna Summer that you're also... But, they were, but at this time, I mean, they were the hottest thing in music and had been the hottest thing in music for quite a while. I mean, they were they were white hot. No question about it. And thanks to the disco era, speaking of, Donna Summer that year became the first female artist to have five top ten hits in the same year. I didn't remember, I didn't remember Donna Summer being as popular or as big a hit as she was, according to what we've the research we've done for this. So this is I've learned a little bit more about Donna Summer. Yeah, historically, uh, historically popular artist in some ways. Yes. Mm-hmm. What else happened in the world of music, Bill? Michael Jackson released his breakthrough off the wall album, sold seven million copies in the U.S. alone, and made it seven times platinum. Not bad. Uh, Pink Floyd's "The Wall." A rock opera and concept album was first released. And some other albums that were released that year was Tusk, which was Fleetwood Mac's follow-up to Rumors. One of my favorites, Damn the Torpedoes, Tom Petty. And another one of my big favorites is Breakfast in America by Supertramp. Also in 1979, the Sugar Hill Gang released Rapper's Delight in the United States, one of Bill's favorite songs. Obviously the first rap single to become a top 40 hit on the Billboard Hot 100. In excess, performed for the first time, and then here's Bill's favorite note, I'm sure, about the 1970s. Why don't you go ahead and tell us what else happened in music? ABC's American Bandstand featured, featured the debut of the YMCA dance using the hand gestures forming the letters YMCA during a broadcast with the village people. Has there been a year uh, since then that you haven't seen someone do the YMCA dance? No. In fact, you, you, side note here, sidebar here, Your Honor. At the Dayton Dragons game, they have an entertainment group there that was that's the retirement village people. <laughs> that's fantastic. 
All right, let's move on to television. The first cable sports channel, ESPN, known as the Entertainment Sports Programming Network, is launched in the United States, and Sports Center debuts. Bill, who was the first host of ESPN Sports Center? Wasn't it George Grand? George Grand, former Reds play-by-play guy on television. George and Grand. very, very nice man. Yeah, just about the nicest person that ever walked the earth. Yeah. I make fun of George's announcing because. You know, he, he always calls balls getting hit to the warning track that they catch in, you know, medium left field. But he's the couple of times I've been had the opportunity to meet him. He could not have been more more welcoming and friendlier. And literally every person that's come into contact with George Grant says the same thing. Just a very well-liked person. Yep. Also, in 1979, C-SPAN was launched, focusing on government and public affairs. And, Bill, I'm going to ask you to tell us about the uh, the shows that debuted in 1979, and I want to know which one of these is your favorite. Well, they didn't, don't have a whole lot to pick from this year, <laughs> in my opinion. Uh, the Dukes of Hazard, This Old House, The Facts of Life, Heart to Heart, Trapper John M.D., The Misadventures of Sheriff Lobo, and Benson all debuted that year. And, hey. <laughs> I can honestly say I I, I didn't I was not a regular viewer of any of these, but I, I will say I did like the theme for Dukes of Hazard because I'm a Waylon Jennings fan. There you go. Yeah, young Chad watched the Dukes of Hazard and the Facts of Life quite a bit, and also Sheriff Lobo. But I, yeah, I can't say that's a Hall of Fame group. There was Facts of Life, the one about all the girls at the boarding school. It is yes. You liked Blair, that's why you watched it. <laughs> no, no, no. I like Tootie. Leaving the air in 1979. All in the Family. I think we've talked about All in the Family just about every single uh, episode of this podcast just because it's, it was the television program of the 70s, right? I mean, it was the consummate show. Absolutely, but it came back the next year as, what was it, Archie's Place, I think? Yes. Starsky and Hutch went off the air. Welcome back, Cotter. Good Times, Match Game, and Jeopardy went off the air. That's too bad. Jeopardy was canceled. But it came back in 84, and it's been on ever since, I think. Yeah, you're right. But losing Starsky and Hutch, now that one was traumatic for me. I mean, th- that was, you know, that, that big red Ford Torino. Yeah, that was right in your wheelhouse, wasn't it? Yes, it was. That was a cool car. The World of Sports, the national championship game in college basketball. Michigan State University, led by Irvin Magic Johnson, defeated Larry Bird-led Indiana State in the uh, championship game at Salt Lake City. Now, did you get a chance to watch that game? Do you remember it? I know you're not a huge college basketball fan. Uh, no, I didn't see it. I, I think I might have been – I might have been – I was probably deployed. I think right. I was overseas right. at the time. And, and that's an excuse for not watching every big uh, sporting event? We normally didn't have access, even though we were in the Caribbean for a Super Bowl. The, the uh, Steelers and the Rams, I think, we got to watch on our television on the ship when we were in the Caribbean working up for a deployment. That, and But for the most part, we didn't have any live television. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing your duty uh, there. The Steelers and the Rams were the 19, early 1980. In early 1979, the Steelers defeated the Dallas Cowboys 35-31. to Terry Bradshaw won MVP. It was their third Super Bowl win, and their fourth would come the next year against the Rams. The Seattle Supersonics won the NBA championship against the Washington Bolts four games to one. Dennis Johnson was MVP. That, of course, was a rematch of the 78 finals won by Washington. And tell us what else happened in the world of sports, Bill. Uh, The Montreal Canadiens defeated the New York Rangers four games to one to win their fourth consecutive Stanley Cup. 
And and we talked about this a couple, or at least hinted about it, or questioned about it a couple a couple episodes ago. Desco, disco demolition night happened at Comiskey Park in Chicago. It was an anti-disco promotional event held by a Chicago rock station, and it involved exploding disco records with a bomb. Well, it caused almost a riot between games during a Major League Baseball doubleheader between the White Sox and the Tigers, and they ended up having to cancel the second game. It was such a disaster. <laughs> Disco Demolition Night, a historical moment in baseball history. You all right? Yep. That was my that was my disco demolition. <laughs> okay. I didn't know what that was. <laughs> Outstanding. Sound effects from Bill Lack today. Oh, this this could not get any better. Tell us who was born in nineteen seventy nine, Bill. Chris Pratt, Kevin Hart, Jordan Peele, who was the director of Get Out, Adam Levine from Maroon 5, and Courtney Kardashian. I know you're a big Kardashian fan, so this is a high point of the 70s for you, right? Uh, Yeah, right. <laughs> also born in 79, actress Evangeline Lilly, Jason Momoa, who was in the uh, horrible Aquaman movie, but uh, still seems like a nice guy, Jennifer Love Hewitt, Oscar Isaac from the Star Wars franchise, Heath Ledger, several members of the Office staff, John Krasinski, Mindy Kaling, and B.J. Novak, and from Mystery Science Theater 3000, the greatest show in the history of Earth, Felicia Day. And what about deaths? John, Krasin John Krasinski is now Jack Ryan, of course. That's true. That's true. On Jason Momoa, the, the commercial that, he's, that he did for the Super Bowl was pretty hysterical, though. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That was the, probably the best Super Bowl commercial of last year with his little skinny arms that look like mine. Yeah, it was kind of disturbing. <laughs> Very much so. Deaths in 1979. Who passed away, Bill? This first one is a is a one that will again has sort of someone we've talked about throughout this series. Yeah, um, Marion Michael Morrison passed away, and for those that don't know, that was John Wayne. He died at the age of 72 from the effects of the cancer that he'd fought off and on through the second part of his life. Uh, a big loss to me. I mean, I was a huge John Wayne fan, and I can I can still remember seeing the, the newspaper that morning. Also in 1979, former Sex Pistols bassist Sid Vicious was found dead, age 21, heroin overdose, one day after being released from a 55-day sentence at Rikers Island. Others that passed away, Nelson Rockefeller, early movie star Mary Pickford, Mamie Eisenhower, and Yankees catcher Thurman Munson. Who was not as good as Johnny Bench. Let's not embarrass him by comparing him to John Bench. Okay. That's right. Let's talk about the 1979 Reds and... To set the stage, 1978, as you will recall, if you listen to our last episode, the Reds finished 92-69, and 69, but second in the National League West. They had a new general manager, Dick Wagner, took over for Bob Housem, who had retired, and uh, Sparky Anderson led them to the 92-69 and 69 record. So the, the season ends, and the Reds, specifically Dick Wagner, made some decisions. Why don't you tell us about that, Bill? As the 78 season w w wound down, Wagner decided that he wasn't going to bring back. I mean, in a nutshell, he decided he wasn't going to bring Pete Rose back and he wasn't going to bring Sparky Anderson back. The reasons we'll get into in a little while. Uh, and, and I guess we'll cover Sparky first. So what happened was in, in October, November that year, the Reds went to Japan and did a baseball tour. They fly back and, Wagner flies out to L.A. to meet Sparky in an airport hotel on November the 27th. And 
there's different reports about what happened during this. According to some reports, all Wagner told him was, I'm not bringing you back. Other reports have said that Sparky was fired because he refused to take front office orders to make changes to his coaching staff. Now, you have to remember that, that Sparky had finished first or second in eight of his nine years with the Reds. He had 863 wins, by far the club record. But but many believe that his problems with Wagner started in 77. He, he had softened the, the training regimen. He allowed Bench, Morgan, Rose, and, and other stars to skip long spring training road trips. And, and some felt some players felt that Sparky kind of lost his grip on the team. And in Big Red Dynasty, uh, there's there's a, an interesting part. You know, Jack Billingham says that Anderson didn't have the grip on the players that he once had. He'd gotten too friendly. He couldn't get on them anymore. When you have nine superstars, they almost handle you instead of you handling them. But isn't that uh, sort of the, the uh, you know, 180 degree opposite of what he was given credit for early on. You Absolutely, and the hypocrisy of this is almost baffling, because he was given credit because he tried, you know, he treated his superstar differently, and, and told people, you know, you want to get the the perks of a bench Morgan Rose Perez, be a bench Morgan Rose Perez, and now all of a sudden it's a big deal. You know, you can look at this a number of ways. This is Wagner trying to put his own stamp on the team, wanting to bring in his own guy. However, you want to look at it. I guess. I mean, there are plenty of reasons to criticize Dick Wagner, and we, I'm sure we could spend another full episode talking about those. But Sparky just finished second place, 92 and 69. The year before, second place, 88 and 74. So off back to back world championship seasons, Sugar Bear, we have two years of second place. Where, you know, they were not great, but uh, Sparky also had to face some, uh, some, some problems with uh, with pitching that weren't of his creation, and he's a scapegoat for finishing second twice. It boggles the mind after you know the last uh, three decades of Reds baseball that uh, he could have been con- even considered a candidate to be fired. Do, do, do you think any manager get, get would get fired now for winning ninety eight games? Oh <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> and, and 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 another thing from this again from from uh, Red Leg Dynasty. Uh, or Big Red Dynasty, I'm sorry. He, According to this, Wagner considered making a change as early as the summer of 78. And he said he consulted Hauslam about the idea. And because of Hauslam's continuing involvement with the organization, he said Anderson and others assumed that, that Hauslam was behind his firing. And, and what Wagner says, he talked to Hauslam, but but he didn't, he, he as in Hauslam, didn't fire him. I don't pass, pass the buck. There's, it was no real mystery. We were in a change in times with our team in the relationships with players, and I was unable to get Sparky to adjust to some things, I would do the same thing again. And, and the shocking thing to mo- a lot of people is that that if most people believed, according to Red Lake Dynasty, that if Hausen would have still been in charge, he would have seen the great job that Sparky had done with that 78 team that was beat up and they scraped together a pitching staff and probably would have kept him for at least another year. But Hausen wouldn't get involved, in, and he said it was Wagner's decision to make. Ultimately, what it comes down to is that it shocked a lot of people that Sparky Anderson had been fired. I mean, this was the uh, the the skipper of the big red machine. In some ways, although the Reds go on to be successful in '79, as we're going to uh, discuss here, uh, but very soon the losing times uh, did return, and so Sparky didn't get a whole lot of the uh, the blame for the the losing. It wouldn't have been his fault anyway, because he wasn't putting together the rosters. It was Dick Wagner's fault. 
uh, primarily. But uh, but I guess w- in terms of legacy and and how Sparky's remembered, it didn't hurt his legacy long term. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and Wagner did made two decisions in this offseason that made him uh, the the most hated person in Cincinnati for a long, long time. And before we get to that second one, let's talk about uh, the hiring of Sparky Anderson's replacement. It was John McNamara. What do you know about John McNamara, Bill? Well, he he'd been a pretty good manager. He'd been a minor league manager, player manager for for like fifteen years. He'd been the A's manager before Dick Williams in in Oakland, and he was fired for Williams and and Williams would go on, as we know, win five straight division titles and three American League and World Series titles. Uh, he'd later managed, uh, or he'd managed the, the Padres before he came to the Reds. And, and other, he'd never been real successful anywhere. His, his, his biggest success in his career would be with the Reds, even though he'd, had some, he'd have some success with Boston, uh, where he would manage later. Uh, he'd manage the Angels and the Red Sox, to an, and he managed the Red Sox to an American League pennant, and he'd also managed the Indians in the, in the early 90s. So John McNamara takes over for Sparky Anderson, and really that's a – if you wanted to end the Big Red Machine era at after 78 or when Sparky was fired, perhaps you could make that argument. We've talked all along about when – after 76, when Tony Perez was traded, you know, uh, when does the Big Red Machine end? And Sparky's gone, and then in December, the Reds uh, lose really their most popular player as Pete Rose uh, signs elsewhere. What can you tell us about – Pete Rose and his uh, his free agency and why he didn't return to Cincinnati. Well, the Reds didn't want him back. You can't overemphasize how important this Pete leaving town was. Pete was the captain of the Reds. Pete was a Cincinnati kid. Pete was, you know, until until '89, uh, Pete was an icon. Uh, I'm not convinced there's ever been a more popular player in Cincinnati than Pete Rose. The Reds. As we said earlier, Wagner had already made the decision that he wasn't bringing Rose back. Pete had a his contract had expired after the '78 season. He'd had a heck of a year. He hit 302. He scored over 100 runs. He had 198 hits. He had a 44 game hitting streak. But Wagner thought he was he was declining. Even Sparky had said that Pete's bat was slowing way down, and he beat 38 when '79 started. Um. Pete wanted a, a four hundred thousand dollar multi year deal, but he, he wanted to stay in town, and even even reportedly offered the team a hometown a hometown discount, and that may have been the first time that term was ever used. It's the first time I ever remember hearing it. But Wagner, uh, and this was a move that was supported by Lewis Nippert, who was the team chairman, offered Pete a pay cut to stay, knowing he wouldn't take it. And another reason the Reds later said that that. They didn't offer Rose a, a, a reasonable offer, make Rose a reasonable offer, was because there were already reports of Pete's gambling problems. Though at this point, it doesn't sound like it was about baseball. It was, I think it was more about horse racing than anything else. And the Reds really never seriously negotiated with Rose through this whole thing. And then on December the 8th, after a carno- they call it a carnival-like tour of baseball, Pete signed with the Phillies for 810000 a year for four years. The Philadelphia Phillies, and so ended an era. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair to say that he was uh, certainly the most popular player at that time and maybe the most popular player ever to play in Cincinnati, uh, regardless of what's happened uh, since he retired as a player. But this was a, a kind of a moment where 
if we're analyzing it at the time, just from the baseball perspective, I can't say that I would be too upset with my team letting a 38-year-old go, you know, uh, who who was, you know, sure he was Pete Rose, Hall of Fame ability, but also, you know, at that age, he's asking for that much money. Maybe there's a better place to put that money. But and, and you had and you had a guy coming, you know, Ray Knight was coming up, and, and Ray Knight had a very good year for the Reds in '79 at third base. Absolutely, I think you could absolutely make the case if you take emotion out of it. Yes, but, but you can't take emotion out of sports. You can't. I mean, you have to when you're uh, when you're running the team, I guess, and that's what Dick, what yeah. Dick Wagner felt. But the fans are going to smack you around anyway, and, and that actually happened because Pete Rose was. I don't care how old he was, and as we saw when he returned a few years later, still as popular as ever. So, but one thing about uh, Dick Wagner at this time that uh, he did not ever really seriously negotiate with Rose, as you said, but in kind of a change in thinking, they did decide to uh, reverse the Bob Housen's long-standing aversion to seeking out free agents, and they did make a free agent offer actually to Tommy John, who would ultimately sign pitcher would ultimately sign with the Yankees and have a surgery named for him, and Lee Lacey, who ultimately went to the Pirates. So the Reds would not sign an actual impact free agent for many years, but at least they were starting to maybe change their minds on that. Is that fair? Yeah, and it's, it, I think it's kind of funny or interesting anyway that both the offers they made were guys that were playing for the Dodgers. <laughs> interesting, huh? Interesting. Mm. Always the Dodgers. What can we do to hurt the Dodgers? Okay, let's get to the regular season, the Cincinnati Reds. Opening day is April the 4th at Riverfront Stadium. Tom Seaver on the mound. Reds coming off two straight second-place finishes. And their ace, Tom Seaver, can't get out of the second inning. Gives up uh, seven runs. Four of them earned uh, in an eight-run second inning. And the starting pitcher for the other side. Again, I whined about it in our last episode, Bill. But tell us about the, who the starting pitcher was uh, for the opposition. A left-hander named Vita Blue, who should have been a Red at this point. If you recall, he was traded to the Reds, and that Commissioner Bowie Kuhn denied that trade. Blew through a complete game for San Francisco. The Giants win it 11-5. The Reds made five errors, including errors by George Foster, Joe Morgan, and Johnny Bench. And so, John McNamara, welcome to the Big Red Machine. Oh, yeah, Seaver gets shelled. Your team plays like little leaguers, and you get killed by a guy that uh, should have been on your team. Welcome to Cincinnati, John McNamara. And it, and it doesn't get a whole lot better. A couple of days later. I mean, they lose their first three. And the fourth game of the year on April the 8th, they, they've got Mike Koss on Mike Lacoste on the mound, and he can't get out of the first inning. He gives up five runs. But then the Reds come roaring back, and they, get, they end up getting their first win of the season on a Morgan walk-off single in the 10th. And that day, Foster had a grand slam, and Doug, ba- Doug Bear threw four shutout innings of relief and a 7-6-10 inning Reds win. So through the first month of the season, uh, McNamara's team does kind of scramble back a little bit. On May the 1st, they are 11-11, and but already four games behind first place Houston Astros, and it kind of stayed that way. They kind of scuffled throughout May at the end of May. They're three games up, 26-23. and They were actually six games up before losing their final three games in May, all to the Astros, and that dropped them to one and a half games behind. Actually, on May the 28th, the Reds were a game and a half up and got, had been up as much as three games earlier in the month. They really went on a run, but ultimately dropped back, and they're a game and a half behind as we enter into June. We get down to the end of May, May 25th, 
And on that day, the Cincinnati Reds were in first place, tied. And they played the Los Angeles Dodgers. They allowed seven home runs in a 17-6 loss in L.A. Tom Seaver got shelled again. Frank Pastore got killed. And in the sixth, with Los Angeles up 14-2, again, these hated Dodgers, Davey Lopes hit a 3-0 pitch for a home run, and when he came up again in the eighth, Dave Tomlin threw four straight at his head, and there was a bench-clearing brawl. Some things never change. <laughs> the Reds and Dodgers. <laughs> it could only be the Dodgers. By June 1st, though, the Reds were a game and a half behind Houston at 27-23. Again, they had been in first place, but they were had dropped back for losing the final three games of May to Houston. June 1st, Pete Rose returned to Riverfront. Tell us about that game, Bill. Well, it was the biggest crowd since opening day. They had almost 49,000 folks in attendance that day. Pete went 0 for 4, and the Reds won 4 to 2. <laughs> and if you look at the box score, it's real, kind of a strange thing. Morgan must have gotten hurt or been hurt uh, this day or taken a day. He must have been hurt because he pinch hit in the game and he walked. Then he got pinch run for by Tom Seaver. So I don't think it's very often that you see a, a Hall of Famer pinch run for a Hall of Famer. <laughs> That's one of the few times in baseball history, I'm sure. I would think. Reds won on two unearned runs in the eighth inning. And just a little bit of Pete Rose trivia I looked up. Other Reds that wore the number 14. Kurt Flood wore 14 for the Reds in 1957. Fellow Western Hills High School alumni Donnie Zimmer wore number 14 for the Reds in 62. Great pitcher Paul Derringer won 14, wore the number 14 in 1934. And, of course, Pete Rose Jr. wore it in 1997. The immortal, Pete Rose Jr. June 5th, amateur draft again, Bill. This is like a <laughs> skipping record. Another bad draft by the Reds. First round, they picked Daniel Lamar, who never got above A ball. Just another horrible draft for the team, and it's been so consistent throughout this process, and it's a big reason why they were so pathetic in the early 80s, right? Yeah, there was really only one guy that drafted that year from the Reds that, that ended up having any success at all. They they drafted guys named Bob Buchanan. I guess this is Keith Cato, Jeff Jones, and they'd all get a cup of coffee in the big leagues, but they wouldn't be there long. And the guy that had a really good major league career was Jeff Russell. Of course, he had it somewhere else. June 9th, Tom Seward threw a three-hitter against the Expos, retired the final 24 hitters as Reds won 7-1 to one and I love red seat home run trivia, Bill. Davey Concepcion hit a red seater off Spaceman Lee. Is it, would you ever guess that Davey Concepcion would hit a red seater? I, I, I would have, only because I remembered every time that they would publish the list in the paper. Every time somebody hit a red seat home run, it seemed like they would post a list in the paper of the red seat home runs. And Concepcion's name on that list, or it was in the program, you know, if you get a program at the, at the ball yard. It always surprised me to see Dave Concepcion's name on there. That's why it's stuck in my brain. I guess this is this is presumably the only one he ever hit. I wonder if the, that list is still out there somewhere. Oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. I need to find that. June 13, Mike Lacoste, five innings pitch. Tommy Hume, four innings pitch. Combined on a two-hitter versus the Mets in the Reds' 4-1 win at Shea. And then June 28th, it's a trade. And I want you I want you to explain what happened surrounding this trade, if you would, Bill. Well, once again, we go back to the saga of Pedro Bourbon. <laughs> um, the Reds traded Pedro Bourbon to San Francisco for a guy named Hector Cruz. And Pedro wasn't happy. Angered by the trade, he put a voodoo hex on the Reds. And he left it on them 
until he finally removed it when he came back to Cincinnati playing an old-timers game in 1990. Now, they won a division in 79. When did they win another division title? Let me see. 1990. I'm just saying. <laughs> the the curse of Pedro Bourbon. It didn't have anything to do with Dick Wagner after all. It was all it was all voodoo. That's right. Voodoo and hoodoo and <laughs> now the last day of June, Tom Seaver threw a three hitter. This is uh, three weeks after he retired the final twenty four hitters in a win. In this game against San Francisco, he retired the final twenty one. And you mentioned uh, in the last episode something about how Seaver. You had this. Uh, there was this common knowledge that you had to get Seaver early, and and you actually looked up to see whether that was true, didn't you? Yeah, I did. The the we 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 did talk about. The, in fact, I think we've talked about this with a lot of really good pitchers. I think Carlton was kind of the same way. But I remember really hearing about Seaver. Is if you want to get him, you better get him early, or you weren't going to get him. So I went and looked it up, and Seaver's ERA in the first inning was three point seven five, and no other inning was it above two point zero. Wow, that's pretty strong. It's <laughs> not bad, not bad at all. So and Mick, I do like when I do like when the stats prove that my memory isn't as bad as my wife tells me it is. <laughs> every once in a while, every once in a while. Mid-May, May nineteenth, the Reds are three games up in first place, but by the end of June, they have uh, have tanked a little bit. And after the first uh, day of July, they're actually eight and a half games out of first place. At, they're forty-one and thirty-nine, so two games above. And really, for for a guy that comes in and is expected to revitalize the team, or we needed a different face to charge up the Reds, John McNamara had not done a whole lot through the first three months to inspire a whole lot of confidence, had he? No, he really hadn't. They they played up and down baseball, and at, at this point, by the, by the fourth of July and around the All Star break, they'd be ten games out. All right, July fourth, the Reds lost three to two. To Houston, and again, the Reds are scuffling at this point, and another big brawl takes place that day. Beanballs exchanged by Bill Bonham and Joaquin Andujar, who, if you'll recall from previous episodes, was a Reds farmhand who'd been sent to Houston after the 1975 season. And uh, the stars, quote-unquote, of that brawl were Ray Knight and Cesar Cedeno, who would be traded for each other in 1981. Now, take over Forrest Bill at the All-Star Game. Again, we're uh, July 17th is the All-Star Game, and at that time... The Cincinnati Reds are six games behind. They had to come back from ten and a half back, which is where they were after that July 4th bean brawl. They fight back to six games behind by the end of the first half, and I'll let you tell us about the All-Star game, please, Bill. The All-Star game that year was held in the Kingdom out in Seattle, and the National League won 7-6 to six with a run scoring in the top of the ninth. The, uh, the Reds had five All-Stars that year, Bench, Foster, Morgan, Concepcion, and Lacoste, and Foster was the only starter which is kind of shocking when you think about it. But but Foster was, a, I shouldn't say that, because Foster was a bona fide superstar at this point. I mean, he led the league in RBIs two years in a row, home runs once, and was just a really, really, really good player at this time in his career. As the second half got started, the Reds finally start clawing back in this thing, don't they, Bill? Yeah, they do. They, they, the Reds would end up uh, having a heck of a second half. Uh, it starts on July the 19th, Ray Knight, Hits a grand slam off ex-Red Will McEnany in a 16-4 win over St. Louis. The 22nd, Concepcion hits a grand slam in Chicago in a 12-1 win in game one of a doubleheader. Johnny Bench ties a National League record with five walks and six plate appearances, but the Reds lose the second game of the doubleheader. 
The 23rd, after, after the DH, the day before, the Reds and the Cubs would complete a suspended game from May the 10th that was tied 7-7 to in the 9th. And then that game would end up going 18 innings before the Cubs won 9-8. to Then the Reds lost the regularly scheduled game also 2-1. to So in two days, they played 36 innings of baseball. That's a lot of baseball in two days. That's a lot of baseball. We make it to August and begin the dog days of August, and the Reds are still three and a half back. They're 59 and 51, but August went uh, went pretty well for them, didn't it? Yeah, they had a pretty good month. Um, like I said earlier, they, they had a real good second half. They go 19 and 7 in August, play 731 baseball, and finish the month by winning 11 to 13. On August the 8th, Bonham had a two hitter versus Atlanta, 3 1 win over Hall of Famer Phil Necro. August 22nd, the Reds won 7-2 over the Expos, and, and Johnny Mitch broke the team record with his 325th home run. But uh, that wasn't the only excitement of that game, was it? Well, there were other bats that, that got some, some press that day, too, because the game was held up when two bats landed on the turf near second base and had to be removed uh, before the game could continue. And those are not like baseball bats. Those are like... Vampire bats, but probably, not, but probably not vampire bats. Probably not, but hey, we don't know. We weren't there. I was not there. August 24th, Bonham and Hume shut out the Mets one to nothing. Seaver won his 11th straight decision two days later to go to 13-5. and five. August 27th, Mike Lacoste, Tom Hume combined for a two-hitter, when and the Reds win 4-2, to and Tom, Danny Dreesen hit a two-out, two-run triple in the ninth. And then... August 29th, the Reds won their eighth game in a row, 7-6 over the Phillies. They're actually down 6-2, scored four runs, keyed by a bench home run, and then Doug Bear pitched four scoreless innings of release and so, relief. And so we get to September 1st. The Reds are 77-59, and 59, a game and a half behind Houston still, though. They're unable to really make up too much ground. They're still playing well, but still behind. Now, I'll mention September 7th when Joe Morgan collected his 2,000th hit and the Reds lost to the Dodgers. At that point... They're a half game back, and now we get this big series between Houston and Cincinnati. Uh, can you tell us about that series and, and how the Reds, who are, again, a half game out when it starts, how that ends up? Yeah, the first the first 10 days of September, they, they had stayed within a half game of the Astros back and forth. And then on the 11th of September, they went into Houston, or, or the Astros, I'm sorry, the Astros came into Riverfront for a two-game series. And both teams had their ace going in the in the first game. Uh, Reds had Tom Seaver, the Astros had J.R. Richard, and but neither would really pitch like aces that night. Uh, both giving up four runs in that game, and the game, but the game uh, would go to the bottom of fours, nothing to nothing. And in, in the fourth inning, the Reds scored four runs on a bases loaded walk to Foster, a double by Bench, and a sacrifice fly by Danny Dreesen. In the top of the fifth, a doubles by Rafael Landestoy and Terry Poole, and it's four to two. In the top of the sixth, pinch hitter, pitch hitter Denny Walling hit a two-run double that tied the game. And it really could have been worse because before the double with one out, Jeffrey Leonard had been thrown out by bench trying to steal third base. And what do they always say? You never want to get your first out thrown out at third base. In the bottom of the sixth, Concepcion doubles, and he scores on a foster fielder's choice, who then scores on a Ray Knight double, and it's six to four Reds. In the top of the seventh, Doug Bear, who'd relieved Seaver in the sixth, is pitching to Anos Cabell, who doubled in Terry Poole. Tommy Hume replaces Doug Bear, who gives up a sacrifice fly to Danny Heap and a single to Landestoy, scoring Cabell, and it's 7-6 to six Houston. 
At this point, Bill Verdon, who was the man, manager of the Astros, he went to his big stopper, Joe Sambito. And then Sambito, in 79, Sambito had a heck of a year. He'd have a 177 ERA, an ERA plus of 199. He'd make the all-star team. And he'd have a 3.3 wins above replacement out of the bullpen. But not on this night. He gave up a two-run homer to Concepcion. was Concepcion's 10th. He gave up a solo shot to Foster, his 27th. And the Reds had a 9-7 lead. In the top of the ninth with Tommy Humes pitching for the Reds, he gives up leadoff back-to-back singles to Hector Cruz and Anus Cabell. And with runners at first and third, Jeffrey Leonard hits into a double play. Cruz scores with 9-8. But then pinch hitter Jesus Alou doubled and Rafael Landestoy singles with Alou going to third. So that brings Art Howe to the plate with a time run at third base and two outs. But he takes a strikeout looking and the Reds take over first place and they hold first place for the rest of that season. Yeah, crazy, exciting game on September 11th of 1979. And it was the turning point, uh, really, when the Reds and Astros had battled all year. And they would continue to battle, but the Reds would remain in first place the rest of the way. The following day, it was just a two-game series. The Reds jumped on Joe Necro for six runs over first three and a third and cruised to a 7-1, to excuse me, and cruised to a 7-4 to win. Frank Pastore came in in the fifth inning in relief, pitched a scoreless three and a third. So the Reds take over first and then still... Ha- clinging to a half-game lead by the three days later on September the 15th when they go out to Los Angeles, which is where many, many Reds' leads have dissipated. Tell us about that one on September 15th, Bill. Well, like you said, they went out there with a half-a-game lead, and then with two outs in the top of the ninth, Dreesen hits a ball that bounces off the glove of Daryl Thomas and over the fence, and the Reds win 2-1. to one. Norman... Freddie Norman pitched seven innings of one-run baseball that night, and Mario Soto got the win with two innings of hitless relief. Mario Soto pitched in 25 games that season. We all remember him as the legendary starter in Reds history. All 25 games in relief that season, interestingly enough. September 21st, the Reds go into Houston. The Reds have a two-and-a-half game lead by this time. And for the Houston, this is a three-game series with a chance to really pull back into it. In game one, that we play before nearly 45,000 fans and would actually draw over 130,000 at the Astrodome for the three-game series. First game, again, Tom Seaver versus J.R. Richard. And this game, unlike the last one, they pitched like aces. Seaver pitched a nine innings, gave up uh, only two runs, five strikeouts, one walk. J.R. Richard pitched 11 innings, two earned runs, 15 strikeouts, and one walk. It ends in the 13th when Tom Hume, in his fourth inning of relief, He'd actually come in for Seaver. He allowed a single with the bases loaded, and Houston won three to two. So the lead's down to one and a half. There are the Reds about to have another have a collapse here. Is this going to be the end of the big red machine? What happens the next day, Bill? Well, the Reds score in the first without a hit. Dave Collins got hit by a pitch. Morgan walked. Concepcion flew out, which moved Collins to third base. Joe stole, Joe Morgan stole second. Foster walked, and then the Reds would score on a ground out by bench but they wouldn't get anything more all day. Uh, Joe Necro won his 20th that day. He threw eight innings of one-run baseball, and Sam Beto picked up his 20th save, and Houston won the game 4-1. to And the lead's now down to half a game. Down to a half a game. September 23rd, Frank Pastore versus Vern Rule. In the second inning, George Foster hits his 28th home run, but the Astros tied the game in the bottom half. In the fourth, the Reds do post three runs, though. Consecutive hits by Hector Cruz, this is the, the 
center fielder who came over in the Pedro Bourbon trade, uh, Frank Pastore, the pitcher, and a tripled by Dave Collins. So it puts the Reds up 4-1. to one. That's where it would end. Pastore pitches a complete game, giving up one run, and also had a hit in an RBI. And the Reds lead at that time is back to 1.5 with five games to play. Houston still has seven of the games to play, but that was pretty much it, uh, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah, it was. On the 28th, the Reds would clinch the division with a 3 nothing win, shutout win over Atlanta. Pastore would throw another complete game shutout, or another complete game, and he'd have a shutout that day on a four-hitter where he'd strike out seven and only walk one. After the series in, in Houston, the Reds would go two, two, two and three, but two of their losses would be after that. Two of their losses would be after they clinched on the 28th. Houston would go into Atlanta and lose three of four, and that was really the killer for them. And then they lost the first game in LA on the on the day that the Reds clinched. So the Cincinnati Reds back in the playoffs again after a two year absence. Before we get to the playoffs, Bill, let's kind of wrap up the season. Now the 1979 team won 90 games, which is actually two fewer than Sparky's 1978 team, but they won the division by a game and a half. Since we're tracking the Dodgers, we'll note that the Dodgers, who had appeared in the last two World Series, they fell to 79-83, a distant third-place finish in the National League West. Uh, tell me about the stars for the offense, Bill. Well, the, the one thing I do want to point out, we had talked about how well the Reds played in the second half. They played 627 baseball in the second half of the season. They went 42-25 and 25 in the second half. That's nothing to sneeze at. Individual players... Johnny Bench had a really good season. He had a 5.6 wins above replacement with a 123 OPS plus. He had 22 home runs. George Foster had a 5.1 win above replacement with 30 home runs and an OPS plus of 155. Davey Concepcion had one of his best seasons. Uh, he had a 4.9 wins above replacement, won a Golden Glove, hit 16 home runs, came in ninth in the MVP voting. And Ray Knight, in his rookie year, hit 310 with 10 home runs and finished fifth in the MVP voting. So in the MVP voting that year, Knight was fifth, Concepcion was ninth, and, and Foster was 12th. But to show how this team has changed at this point, in 79, Concepcion started 133 games, and he hit in the two, three, or five spots in 133 games. You compare that to 76, he hit in the two-hole 24 times, but in 110 games, he hit sixth, seventh, or eighth. And in, and in his best offensive season, which was 74, He'd hit fifth, somewhere between fifth and eighth in 143 games. So, you know, was Davey getting that much better that he should be elevated up to the to the three hole, or was the team just get, you know digressing offensively? I'll let you figure that one out for yourself. Yeah, still good offensively, but certainly not the same as the great eight on the pitching side. Tom Seaver was by far the most effective starter, 16 and six, with a 3.14 ERA. Now, Mike Lacoste, uh, he actually made the All Star team that year and had the best season of his career at age 23. Uh, went 8-0 after June 13th, 14-8 with a 3.5 ERA. If you're looking strictly at wins above replacement, surprisingly, the pitcher who had the highest wins above replacement for the Reds that year, Tommy Hume, who was 10-9. Yeah, 10-9 with a 17 saves, a 2.76 ERA. And Tom Hume uh, with those glasses, this was uh, you know uh, when he kind of established himself as the Reds' closer, although Doug Bear also had 16 saves that year. But Tom Hume was the primary guy. At the back of the bullpen, and looked more like looked more like an accountant than a relief pitcher. He did, he absolutely did. But that was a, a really good year for the 26 year old Tom Hume. By wins above replacement, Freddie Norman's 11 and 13, 364 seems to be the second best of his career at 2.8 wins above replacement, which is a little bit surprising. And then, of course, we have Bill Bonham. Bill Bonham, 30 years old, 
went three and four in the first half with a 4.24 ERA, six and three in the second half, 3.28 to contribute to that great second half. Bill, you had a, a, an interesting note here about the way the games were played in 1979. Well, the speed of the games, even by you know, even in '79, and, and we'll talk about more this more about this in the in the wrap up, but. In 79, the Reds played only 12 nine-inning games that went over three hours. Only 12, think about that, 12 games that went over three hours that were normal nine-inning games. You want to compare that. In 2019, the Reds only played 53 games under three hours. I'm surprised they played that many under three hours, to be honest. I am too, to be honest. Yeah. Okay, well, the Reds are back in the playoffs. The National League Championship Series, the Reds would face their old friends, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Now, this would be the fourth time the Reds would face the Pirates in the National League Championship Series in the decade, and the Reds had beaten the Pirates every single time that they played in the postseason, so the Reds had to be feeling good. Tell me a little bit about the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates, if you would, Bill. Well, the Pirates in 78 had been like the Reds. They'd been close. They'd made a run at, at the Phillies, uh, but they couldn't, they couldn't catch them. Uh, they made a late season push. They played the Pirates played 700 baseball in September, but they lost out to the Phillies by a game and a half in '78. In '79, they edged out the Expos by two games, and the, the Expos made a run at the Pirates in July and early August. And the race stayed pretty close for the rest of the season, but the Pirates won it. They went 61 and 30 over the final third, three months of the season, which is going to get it done. The season series between the two two teams, the Reds had won eight out of the 12, including six of seven when they got together in July. But this was a pretty darn good Pirate team. Uh, they had future Hall of Famer Willie Stargell, who won the MVP that year. They had the 78 MVP, Dave Parker. They had left fielder Bill Robinson. And they had Bill Madlock, who had come over from the Giants. And I want to make a correction on something I said in the 76 season, I believe it was. When I said that Madlock was playing with the Pirates at that time, and I was, I had a brain cramp, and he at that this is when he was won the batting title over Ken Griffey, and he was with the Giants at that time, and I apologize for that mistake. Uh, on the pitching side, they had another future Hall of Famer in Burt Blylevin. They had John Candelaria. They had Bruce Keeson, and in the bullpen, they had a sidearm thrower from this from the, the Cincinnati area, Kent Tacolvi, who grew up in Hamilton and went to Hamilton Catholic High School who had finished uh, fifth in the Cy Young that year, and he'd finished eighth in the MVP voting. Game one took place at Riverfront on a Tuesday night. Tom Seaver took the mound for the Cincinnati Reds. He would face John Candelaria for the Pirates. Candelaria had been out for most of September. In the top of the third, Phil Garner led off with a home run, and then Tim Foley drove in Oscar Moreno, who had tripled with a sacrifice fly, and then Pittsburgh led two to nothing. The Reds, however, clawed their way back in the fourth. George Foster home run with uh, Dave Concepcion aboard that tied the game up at two. Now it stayed that way all the way through the end of regulation. Candelaria pitched seven innings. Seaver pitched eight. They each team turned it over to the bullpens. We get to the top of the eleventh. Tom Hume, again, not like relievers these days. He was starting his third inning of work. He gave up a single to Tim Foley, future Red. Dave Parker singled, and then pops. Willie Stargell homered to give the Pirates a 5-2 lead. Now The Reds threatened in the bottom of the inning. They actually loaded the bases with two outs, but Ray Knight struck out to end the game. That gave the Pirates a 1-0 lead in the series. Tell me what happened in Game 2. The Reds came back and tied the series up, right? Mm, not so much. It, it would be an afternoon game, which tells you how long ago this was. 
afternoon baseball. I don't think they play a whole lot of that anymore, except in the really, really early playoff rounds now. But anyway, Wednesday afternoon crowd of 55,000 at Riverfront, and it would be another close one as, as Jim Bibby would start for the Pirates and the Reds would throw Frank Pastore, the 21-year-old. They'd both throw really well that day. The Reds got on the scoreboard for, first in the bottom of the second. Danny Dreesen singled. Ray Knight singled, sending Dreesen to third, and Pastore drove him in with a sacrifice fly. Uh, in the fourth, Pirates tied it up, and actually it could have been a lot worse. Tim Foley singled. Dave Parker singled. Stargell hit a ball that looked like it should have been caught by Foster, but it went over his head, hit the base of the fence, and it bounced right back to Foster. And Foley and, and Parker had moved up, but Stargell didn't look up till he was almost to second base. And he went, whoops! Turned around, but a, a Foster to Morgan to Dreesen throw gets him sliding back into first base. The Reds then intentionally walked John Milner to load the bases, but the Pirates would score the only run of the inning on a ground out by Bill Madlock. In the top of the fifth, Garner gets a single on a ball that Collins makes a diving, sliding throw for in right center field. And Collins came up showing the ball, but second base umpire Frank Pulley ruled it, that it was a trap, that he didn't catch it clean. There was some discussion about this. Uh, my guess is it was loud with some bad language. Of course, like always, it didn't change anything. Garner then doubled later in the inning. or I'm sorry, Garner was doubled in later in the inning by Tim Foley, and the Pirates led 2-1. to one. It would stay that way to the bottom of the ninth. Uh, the Pirates had their ace reliever, Kent DeColvey, on the mound. And this pinch hitter, Hector Cruz, who had come over for Pedro Borbone, hitting for Tommy Hume in this case, doubled. And he was followed with a double by Dave Collins. So it's tied 2-2 two two for the second game in a row. They're going to extra innings. But Doug Bear came on for the Reds in the 10th, and Omar Moreno singled. He got bunted over by Tim Foley, and drove. he was driven in by a single by Dave Parker. And the Reds went out 1-2-3 in the 10th. So they lose first two at home, and they're going to Pittsburgh, and they're down 2 to nothing. Yeah, and both extra inning games where the Reds were just a hit there or a, a, a strikeout uh, over there away from possibly being up two games to nothing, winning both games at home, and what a different story that might have been if the Reds had been able to capture one or both of those games. Instead, they head to a Friday afternoon game, game three at Three River Stadium before a crowd of 42,540. It was Mike Lacoste, the 23-year-old, versus Burt Blylevin for Pittsburgh, and Lacoste could not even get out of the second inning. The Pirates finish up, By the time the Pirates finished up beating up on Lacoste and Fred Norman, it was six to nothing in the bottom of the fourth, and that was essentially that. The Reds couldn't get any offense against Bly Levin, who really threw one of his best games of the season. A complete game, eight hits, gave up just one run, struck out nine, and walked not a single batter. The Pittsburgh Pirates were headed to the World Series, and the Reds' decade of glory was over. And, and we'll note, after getting past their old nemesis, the Reds, finally getting past the Reds, the Pirates won Another World Series, nineteen seventy-nine, was their second World Series of the seventies. So, uh, you know, you know why we didn't win this playoff series? Tell me. We didn't have a song. <laughs> they did have a song because they had a song. We are family. They were family. We weren't. I guess. I guess not. Our family had moved off to Montreal and Philadelphia and Southern California or wherever Sparky went back to home to. Yep. Our family was was dysfunctional at that point. <laughs> You want to wrap up the playoffs? Not a lot to say, I guess, huh? You really can't say a whole lot when you get swept in three games, even though two of them were extra innings. Um, Johnny Bench and David Concepcion hit pretty well. Morgan was 
Morgan just had a, an atrocious series and his what would end up being his last three games with the Reds, he went 0 for 11. Tom Seaver and Frank Pastore had, had good starts. And the interesting thing to me was that David Concepcion was a number three hitter on this Reds playoff team. And that was the Big Red Machine's final playoff series. Of course, that leads to a question, Bill, right? Yeah, it does. The question is, and, and we'll talk about this in the future, is uh, was the 79 team a legitimate part of the Big Red Machine legacy? We're going to try to answer that question, wrap everything up, and discuss the historical significance of the Big Red Machine in our final episode, available in one week. Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, the brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. You can also find every episode of Building the Machine at redlegnation.com. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes from today's episode came from baseballreference.com and the books Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder and Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying so long, everyone. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.